I want to apologize, first of all, for this voice of mine. I was joking with some folks yesterday at uh, the Primus Memorial Service that this is either uh, an infection of some kind or I'm going through puberty once again. We are delighted that things went so wonderfully well yesterday, and Miss Gloria is here with some dear friends who participated in that service, and uh, I thought the Lord was so wonderfully honored, and that Bob himself would have been so encouraged by not only the songs that were sung, but the words that were conveyed, and how the Lord himself was so honored. And we are so thankful for Grace Bible Church in Moorpark for their hosting uh, that memorial service. Uh, they went far beyond the call of duty as they ministered to us as a church, and we trust that we were honorable to them as we conducted ourselves in their place. I had originally intended to continue our study from John chapter 14, but at 2.02 a.m., if you are not yet aware, on East Coast time, there was an assailant, Muslim, we assume undoubtedly a Muslim extremist, who went into a homosexual nightclub in Orlando, Florida, and killed some 50 people. And now that is being called uh, the, the worst shooting event mass shooting in the history of the United States of America. As I'm speaking here from the pulpit of Thousand Oaks Bible Church, President Obama at 10.30 our time is addressing the nation. So while the nation hears a word from the President of the United States, I want us to hear a word from the living God. So I want you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 2. I had originally intended to bring Psalm 2 to bear on our hearts and minds tonight in our evening service, but the more I watched the events on the television unfold early this morning about what was happening in Orlando, and of course, if you saw the news from the previous night, you saw that there was a crazed man who killed a singer. Uh, also in Atlanta, or uh, Orlando, I should say. And I suspect that within our country, we are going to see endlessly some of these heinous acts of violence perpetrated for whatever motives, whether they're connected with Islam or not. But certainly with Islam, we're going to see what I suspect occurs quite regularly, even though it may not be broadcast on television or the internet as much, and that is that Sharia law calls, of course, for homosexuals to be dealt with very violently. And in places in Europe, and certainly in places that are under Sharia law by Muslims, Homosexuals are being dealt with very, very violently, and so there appears to be some connection between this particular Muslim, a 29-year-old U.S. citizen, uh, Omar Mateen, who has perpetrated this act as of early this morning upon many, many homosexuals who were in this nightclub. 
And we will not yet know, of course, until investigations are complete exactly what are those motives and whether or not he acted alone or whether it was in concert with ISIS or some other extremist group. It may even be true that we can no longer talk about extremism with regard to Islam because these things are happening with such rapidity. You, of course, as I know as well as you do, that that which happened in San Bernardino uh, just months ago was another example of those who are very much intent on trying to dominate the world, maybe not as much in the United States of America uh, as of yet, but certainly want to dominate the world uh, by taking over by force those who do not bow the knee, knee to Allah. And as I was meditating on Psalm 2, I thought to myself, this is, this is the perfect message. This is the message for this morning. Because this psalm, while it's a poem, while it's a song, is also in a sense very prophetic. And it has implications to the later reign, which is yet future to us, of the Lord Jesus Christ as the King of Kings. I want you to look with me at Psalm 2 as I read in the English Standard Version of the Bible this wonderful introductory word along with Psalm 1, of course, to the entirety of the Psalms. Listen to Psalm 1 and 2 because they form the gateway to the rest of the Psalms. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Why do the nations rage, and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. And rejoice with trembling. 
kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. As I said, this is a series of sentences in the first part of the Psalter, 150 psalms arranged under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that you you and I can see the introduction to the entirety of the psalms, and this is what Psalm 1 and 2 are. There are many who believe that these were first in their initial orchestration gathered together as one psalm. And it's interesting that you can see in Psalm 1 what appears to be a focus on individuals for the most part. If you'll notice in Psalm 1, 1, blessed is the man. Now, of course, that's generic for all men, and it doesn't exclude the collective sense of all men. But certainly it is using it in the singular to refer to a godly man as an example. And yet, when you go to Psalm 2, without a superscription per se, uh, uh, an inspired uh, introductory word, it simply goes from Psalm 1 right into Psalm 2, which is one of the reasons why people think these two psalms have been joined together at one point, now separated. It seems to go into more of a declaration of nations, and peoples collectively. Not just a godly man, not just an unrighteous man, but here in Psalm 2, gathering up the sense of the response of some people to this God, to Yahweh, and their collective response to Him. Not just an individual man who responds and who desires to be a godly person, Or not just an individual man who responds, who is unrighteous and doesn't care about Yahweh, who doesn't want to serve him. But now, according to Psalm 2, you have what appear to be a collective response on the part of nations. Do you see that in Psalm 2, verse 1? Why do the nations, plural, rage, and the peoples, plural, plot in vain? Kings, plural, verse 2 set themselves, rulers, plural, verse 2b. Let us, verse 3, burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This is is talking about nation states. This is a reference to Israel's enemies who are all around them. You know all of the ites in the Old Testament? There are several ites who are being referred to here, not by name, but we know who they are. If you have read the Old Testament for any length of time, you know several of their names. Some of them seem quite funny to us, to be honest. And yet it was no laughing matter to the Jews. Because for so many of these ites, they were enraged against the Jews of this day. And they were constantly warring against them. And God would set up a king in Israel. And of course, there was a great promise 
in 2 Samuel, which we'll look at a little later, that God had promised, covenanted, decreed, that he would place a great son of his, David, on the throne, in Israel, on Zion, in Jerusalem, who would reign and who would do God's bidding from the earth. And of course, in the line of David, all the way to the Lord Jesus Christ, there have been several of these kings. And we know, of course, that these kings were constantly trying to deal with all of these warring parties around them, all of the ites. And it seems here that the psalmist, and it seems pretty clear from Acts chapter 4, which we'll also look at in a moment, that this was a Davidic psalm. We call this a royal psalm. It's a royal song because it's talking about kingship. It's talking about ruling, and it's talking about reigning. And according to this psalm, and according to Acts 4, it seems pretty clear that this was indeed a psalm of David. And what David does here is quite remarkable. He gives four stanzas, as it were, of three verses each. Three, six, nine, twelve. Four stanzas to give what we would say is both a song, but also a declaration. A declaration about ruling and reigning. And here's the way this particular psalm goes. The first three verses of this first stanza, we could outline this way. The ungodly's collective rebellion against Yahweh. The ungodly's collective rebellion against Yahweh. Listen to those first three verses again. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. What you have in this first stanza, these first three verses, is the declaration of war. This is truly a declaration of war. There was a a physical conflict that was going on in the nations around Israel at the time, and they were standing against not simply the Israelites, but against the Lord himself. That's what verse 2 says, against the Lord. And do you see the word Lord there is capitalized? It's in all caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Do you know why that's there in your Bible? Sometimes you will have the word Lord, say for instance in verse 4, with a capital L and then lowercase o-r-d. The reason why that first reference to the Lord in verse 2 is all caps is because that's the divine name. That's Y-H-W-H. And if you put some vowels in there, that's Yahweh. That's the divine name of the Lord. That's His personal name. 
And when we understand that, we understand the reality that when there are evil forces in the world, whether we're talking about this time during the monarchy or we're talking about even our own day, when you see Muslims, when you see those who are against God, they're not just blowing people up. They're not just shooting people. They're not just against those in our day as fellow human beings. They do what they do because they're against the God of heaven. That's who they're against. Chiefly, primarily. Does it include human beings in our world? Of course it does. And does it appear at times to be random and malicious against innocent people? Sure it does. It seems that way. But know this. Because of the satanic onslaught against not simply human beings do these atrocities exist. But it is, according to Psalm 2 and many other passages, truly and ultimately against Yahweh God. It's against God. Why do the nations rage? You could put uh, in place of that statement, uh, why do those who are not just Muslim extremists, but why does anyone rage against anyone? Why does a young man in Orlando, prior to what happened last night, walk into a place where someone is singing a song And when that person finishes those songs and that concert and goes to a table to sign autographs and has a young man come and point a weapon at this singer and kills her in cold blood, why does someone in rage like that do what they do? Why? I watched this morning for over an hour, early in the morning, this heartbroken mother of a son that she does not yet know what has quite happened to him because the police are not letting anybody in because they're having to do triage. They're having to figure out uh, the melee in this nightclub. And she was tearfully crying out, Enough! Why can't we all get along? Why do these things happen? Where is my son? Is he among the dead? And the answers are legion like these. And the answer that you know and I know, and I had a conversation with one of my daughters as we watched some of the news feeds, and and the question was, what's going on? And the answer, of course, is what is truly going on is what's going on in the depravity of the human heart. That's what's going on. It's not just an issue of gun control. It's not just an issue of gun control. It's not just an issue of the banning on assault rifles. As important as those matters are, as important as as those issues are, those are not the root issues whatsoever. Hear me clearly. The root issues are a matter of the darkness and the blackness and the sinfulness of the human heart. That's what's going on. And at the root of that kind of blackness, of the depravity of the human heart, the number one black element of that sinful, depraved heart 
as is an enragement against Yahweh God. That's why the nations rage. That's why the peoples plot in vain. It's, it's the ungodly's collective rebellion against our God. That's, that's what's happening here. Notice verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves, or maybe even another translation, the kings of the earth take their stand. And what stand do they take? They're against the Lord. And what do rulers do, according to the latter part of verse 2? They take counsel together. They talk among themselves. And of course, you know that Israel's history, if you want to use that as just one example, the Arab world takes their counsel against the Jews. And they've done it ever since the Ishmael-Isaac problem. And it continues to this day. And it continues to our own day. The kings of the earth take their stand against God and everybody who represents the true God of the Bible. And the rulers take counsel together, and they take that counsel together against God and his anointed people. This is the ungodly's collective rebellion against Yahweh God. And what do they say? Verse 3, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Let's break off the shackles of every dominant rule over us. And let's break them apart. Let's cast away all authority until we are in charge. And I might say today, that's tantamount to saying, just to use one example, and there is a myriad of examples, there are a myriad of examples, but to use just one, let's, and this is what they say, let's ensure that the world is dominated by Sharia law. Just one example. And this is what we're going to do. We're going to burst their bonds apart from us and cast away their cords from us. There shall be no authority over us. We will dominate the world. And by the way, it happened in Peter's day too. Turn to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. Say, why would you go to Acts chapter 4? Well, guess what? Psalm 2 is quoted there. In Acts chapter 4, there was apparently a a kind of wide latitude that gave Peter the opportunity to include this portion, these verses, verses 1 and 2 of Psalm, uh, verses um, 1 and 2 of Psalm 2 in this particular section of our New Testament. Look at Acts chapter 4, verse 23. When they were released, of course, you know that the authorities, even the Jewish authorities at that time, were very, very uncomfortable and very, very agitated at Peter and John's preaching. And they beat them up. And according to Acts 4.23, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. 
And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David. That's why we think this, of course, is a Davidic psalm, because it says it right here. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and here's the Psalm 2 quotation, verses 1 and 2, why did the Gentiles, the nations, rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, isn't it interesting that Peter sees at least an application, if not some level of fulfillment of Psalm 2 right here in what was happening to him? Verse 27, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Notice that, against. Why are the nations raging? Why are they against the Lord? This is what Peter believed was happening, at least some kind of application of Psalm 2, 1 and 2. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. There's that the Lord and against his anointed. There's that phraseology. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So it's not just the Gentiles, but also the wicked Jews who rejected the Lord and rejected his anointing to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. You see what our response should be? In the face of these atrocities that are occurring, and I dare say might even be occurring with more rapid pace than ever before. It could happen that way. On our own soil, in Orlando, Florida, in San Bernardino, California, what do we do? We pray. That's why I want to call all of you back tonight to pray at 6 o'clock. I want to call every single man in this congregation to lead your family to come back here tonight at 6 o'clock. We need to pray, don't we? We need to pray. We need to pray to ask the Lord for what Peter was asking the Lord for in Acts 4. And what is that? Boldness. Boldness. Not to cower in fear. Not to be neglectful in mentioning God's anointed. Who is Yahweh's anointed? The Lord Jesus. That's, that's, what, that's what it says, Acts chapter 4. God's anointed. That's his ultimate anointed. And people don't like that name, Jesus. They don't like the fact that he, Jesus, is God's anointed. And they will do everything within their power because they're enraged against Yahweh And as the kings of the earth, as the rulers take their counsel together, as they take their stand, they're going to stand against Yahweh and against his anointed, the Lord Jesus Christ, and every representative of God and Christ. Look at the second stanza, verses 4, 5, and 6. Let's call this Yahweh's response to the rebellious. 
hey, if this is the ungodly's, ungodly's collective rebellion against Yahweh in verses 1, 2, and 3, here's Yahweh's response to the collective rebellion. Verse 4, He, Yahweh God, He who sits in the heavens, what? Laughs. The Lord, that's not the name for Yahweh, that divine name, that personal name. This is Lord in the sense of sovereign master. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The sovereign one, the sovereign master holds them, the rebellious. All the kings of the earth, all the rulers, all the the people who assault what appear to be innocent victims, just shooting them randomly, and all of their representatives, and all of their leaders who put them up to that, and all of the ideologies of the world, and all of the principles, and the worldview, whether it's Islam, whatever it is, and whatever ideology it comes from, and whatever philosophy or worldview is leading these people to do that, the Lord holds them in derision. That's his response. Verse 5, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. I mean, it appears in our world right now that something like, quote-unquote, radical Islam, and maybe we should take that adjective quite away. Maybe it's getting to that point. It looks as though they're in charge. It looks as though they do things by stealth. It looks as though they can take an AR assault rifle and go into a place seemingly unannounced in the shadows, in the darkness of the night, and begin to mow people down in the savagery of it all. And if you watch via the internet and you see rapes and murders and beatings and dungeons and and torching people and all of that, if all of that is true, if all of that is happening, and I don't doubt it at all, it seems as though they're in charge. It seems as though this overthrow of the world is somewhat imminent. It may not happen in this decade. It may not happen in another 25 years. It may not happen for another 100 years until the Lord uh, tarries and comes back to his own. But, But it could be happening, and it could be happening like a flood, and it may look like people are asking the question, and it may sound legitimate. Where is God? What is he doing? What is his response? Why can't we all get along? Why is everything happening like this? Why did my son die? Why are people being mowed down? Why is this happening? Isn't God doing something? Where's your God, Christian? There was a Muslim imam on ABC who was speaking as though we need to unite all of the religious leaders and stand against the savagery. My response to that is, God will speak to them, and he will speak to them in his wrath, and he will terrify them in his fury. That's why the writer to Hebrews says, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There's not going to be a uniting of religious faiths. There cannot be. If biblical principles hold forth, if we have a creed, if we believe doctrinal truths, 
We aren't the same. We will never be the same. We will never be able to, reni- to unite with all religious faiths. It cannot happen. Because to, to, to do that would be to halt between two opinions. It would be to, to affirm things that cannot be affirmed. No, one day, when God does what he does, when he does, at his time frame, and upon his providential work, he will speak to them in his wrath, and he will terrify them in his fury, and this is what he'll say, verse 6, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And it was King David for a time. It was David's son, Solomon, for a time. And there's no ruling king on Zion right now. In fact, in the holy city of Jerusalem, there are three different faiths who are all trying to grapple for the same piece of real estate, right? Islam, Judaism, Christianity. And one day, when God says, for time and times... And half a time, this will happen. I will set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That's my response to the rebellious. I will take over and my king shall be installed. The third stanza. Yahweh's sovereign ruler will reign. Sovereign ruler, the ruler in the stead of Yahweh will reign. Look at verses 7, 8, and 9. I will tell of the decree. I'll tell of the covenant. I'll tell of the agreement. I will tell of the plan. And what is that plan? Lord, Yahweh said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. What does he mean? What what does that mean? Well, that means that there's going to be a son, David's son. And you and I know it's going to be David's greater son, right? And that son is going to be installed as king on Zion, on God's holy hill. It's a decree. It's going to happen. You don't need to be fearful. You don't need to be afraid. There is a time. It's going to be a time either during our lifetime or a time after our lifetime for our children or our grandchildren or whoever our posterity will be at that time. And God will tell of the decree. It will happen. It is inviolable. It will happen. And who shall it be? I don't know who it might be in successive order. And it probably will not be anybody else on a human level until the Lord Jesus Christ himself comes and takes over. Do you know what leads me to believe that? Well, look at what the New Testament does to that very phrase, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Look at Hebrews 1.5. There is no temple now in Judaism. It's been destroyed, 70 A.D. And I think that there shall not be until the Lord Jesus Christ, 
literally, visibly, physically comes to the earth to do the sovereign's bidding. Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, verse 1, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, that was his cross work, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's the position of power. That's the position of authority. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. In other words, he's superior than all angels. And then this quote, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Jesus Christ is David's greater son, and he's going to reign. Yes, it's true that the nations are enraged right now. And that's why people become so much more enraged at the name of Jesus, at the truth about Jesus at the truth about Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life. The truth about Jesus, as it said in Acts 4.12, there is no other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be what? Saved. Delivered. No other name. There is no other name. This is God's Son. And according to Hebrews 1.5, He is the ultimate fulfillment of this psalm. And the very next verse, or again, or the next half of the verse, or again, this is the quotation, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. That is a quote right out of 2 Samuel 7.14, which is the prophecy that says that I will install my king, David, on the throne, And there will be a throne of David that will last forever and ever and ever. And that's not David. David was in the grave. But there is one who did not suffer decay. And he is David's greater son. And he's the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's going to reign forever and ever and ever. This is is the ultimate fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7.14. It's the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 2.7. Look at chapter 5, verse 5. This is talking about Jesus as the great high priest. And this is another quotation of the same psalm, Psalm 2. So also, (coughs) excuse me, so also, Hebrews 5.5, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, appointed by the Father who said to Christ, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Another quotation from Psalm 2. This is referring to Christ, my friends. This is Jesus. This is not any other would-be Savior. This is, not, this is not any king of the earth. This is not some ruler who's out there who's going to try to take over the world, whether it's Islam or whatever it is. This is God decreeing Psalm 2-7. You're my son. 
Today I've begotten you. In other words, he wasn't created. He's being made king. He's going to be installed. And what does God say about him in Psalm 2.8? Ask of me and I will make the nations, these raging nations, these peoples who are plotting in vain, I will make them your heritage. You're, You're going to be in charge of them. You're going to take over, and the ends of the earth, your possession. Jesus Christ, when He came the first time, came as that lowly servant, right? And He went through unimaginable suffering and pain as the sinless Son of God. But when He returns again, He will return as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And He will reign forever and ever. And the ends of the earth will be His possession and the nations will be His own heritage. And look at verse 9. You, speaking ultimately of the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You could re-vocalize that in Hebrew and it will be you shall smash them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. When a warring faction came in and took over another country and plundered their capital city, they would write the name of their king on the potter's vessel. This is our city now. This is our country now. We've acquired it. We've we've tortured you we've captured you and we're going to write the name of our great king on all of the earthenware and what does jesus do when he comes he's going to smash you with a rod of iron and he's going to dash you in pieces and he's going to take that potter's vessel with any other name other than his own and it shall be smashed forever you say when's this going to happen look at revelation chapter 2 You want to know when this is going to happen? Revelation chapter 2. I don't know the exact time, and nobody else does either, but Revelation 2.27 says this. Revelation 2.27, And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even... These are the very words of Jesus, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. He's going to control them. He's going to smash them. He's going to break them to pieces. He is going to be in charge. Look at Revelation chapter 12. You remember... Revelation 12:5 She being Eve of old gave birth to a male child Symbolically of course this is Israel and Israel is going to produce the Messiah none other than the Lord Jesus Christ and this is what it says of him Revelation 12:5 one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron It's exactly what Psalm 2 says. And look at the end, the ultimate end, Revelation 19. 
This is, this is glorious, my friends. Don't be, don't be fearful. Don't be afraid. Verse 11, then I saw open, Revelation 19, 11, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's going to come. He's going to be installed as Zion's king. And he's going to be in charge. That's what Psalm 2 will ultimately see as its fulfillment. That's Yahweh's sovereign ruler who who will reign. Yes, temporarily. We see these destructive elements in our world and we wonder about our families. We wonder about our houses. We wonder about our food supply. We wonder about so many things. And we can be tempted to be afraid and to be fearful and to wonder if there is not some kind of extreme action that's going to come against us in our own community. And if that were to come to us as it came to those in San Bernardino and those in Orlando and maybe some other major city and it, I suspect it will happen, we have to cling to these verses. We have to cling to the Word of God. We have to believe what it says. And we have to pray that, that Yahweh's sovereign ruler will come quickly, right? Lord Jesus, come quickly. Please come and smash them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel and place your own name on everything, your name being called the Word of God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Fourthly and last, the fourth stanza, obey Yahweh's ruler or perish. That's, that's how he ends. Obey Yahweh's ruler or perish. Verse 10. Now therefore, O kings. This is, this is the plea. This is Yahweh's declaration of what you've got to do. In, in, the, in the face of Yahweh God, the creator of the universe, the most powerful being, and when he says, listen, when all of these things are going to happen, when, when all of this destruction is going to come, when Jesus returns and he sets up his kingdom and he rules and reigns for a thousand years, and then when he puts down the ultimate rebellion and when he throws the sa- Satan and the false prophet and the beast and the lake of fire that burns forever and ever, and when Jesus reigns for eternity, when that happens... And long before, you better take notice, he says. If that's the end of the story, you better act right now. And here's what he says, verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, you better be wise. 
This is God's word to the nation. This is God's word to the world. You better be wise. This is God's word to that person who went into that nightclub last night. This is God's word to that person who killed that singer. This is God's word to anybody who does violence to God's people and who enrages against God himself. You better be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. I'm telling you right now, you'd better repent. You'd better serve Yahweh God. Don't serve the gods of your own making. Don't serve the gods of your own choosing. You're plotting in vain. Your, your plans aren't going to come to fruition. You're taking your stand as the kings of the earth against me, Yahweh says. And he says, I tell you this. This is what you must do. This is a command. Verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear. Serve the Lord with fear. You say, why? Because you're this warrior God and I'm going to cringe in your presence? Well, there's a sense of healthy dread, right? There's a sense of healthy dread. But notice what he says next. And rejoice with trembling. You know what that is? Holy awe. Yeah, there's, there's a two-pronged understanding of fearing God. Healthy dread. Healthy dread. Serve the Lord with fear. And a awe-inspiring reverence. Rejoice with trembling. That's, that's his message. That's his message. I so hope. I so wish, regardless of the political climate, regardless of what appears to be the presumptive candidates for the two political parties that are dominant in our country, I suspect that you and I, in our heart of hearts, will be saying, are saying, and certainly might still be saying by November and beyond, what is our country coming to? Are those actual alternatives is this the end here's our response serve the lord with fear rejoice with trembling have a holy dread of our great god and have this this awe-inspiring reverence of the joy of serving our god and then verse 12 Kiss the Son. Pay homage to God's King. Of course, we know that ultimate fulfillment is the Lord Jesus Christ. Kiss His feet in humble adoration. Bow before Him. That's the warning of Yahweh. Obey Yahweh's ruler. Serve Him. Rejoice in Him. Do homage to Him. Worship Him. Or perish. Because He says, Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Instant obedience. You will obey, even if begrudgingly. Remember Philippians 2? He shall be exalted 
and every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. You're either going to bow your knee and confess to Jesus as Lord because you want Him as Lord, you obey Him as Lord, you love Him as Lord, or every knee will bow and confess even begrudgingly, I don't want to do this, I want to serve Allah, I want to serve some other God of my own making, but I have to admit begrudgingly that I must submit to the one who is ruling over me. If I don't, his anger and his wrath are upon me and I shall perish. And if that's where all if that's all that it said, it would end on a very negative note. But notice what it says, going right back to Psalm one one. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the answer to the message we must heed and hear. Blessed are all who take refuge in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, this is such clarity. While the President of the United States gives his word And as much as we are called upon in Scripture to respect the office, we know that there is a greater office, and it is the office of God Almighty. And we are to give heed to His eternal, authoritative, binding Word. And we do so. Thank you for Psalm 2. Thank you that in light of the most horrific mass shooting on American soil in its history, and to hear the pundits say that it is now only second to 9-11, we are called upon to pray with boldness. And we know that Acts... 1333 tells us that your son, the one you have begotten, is being declared the Lord Christ, your anointed through his resurrection from the dead. And so we pray with boldness and with reverent fear that no matter what happens in our world, We as Christians, undoubtedly persecuted in so many other parts of the world and potentially in our own country as time goes on, we pray that you would bring us back together tonight at 6 o'clock so that we would pray and that we would pray fervently that you will one day install your king on Zion, your holy hill, and it will be the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.